This very special Rights Ricky Sanchez podcast is brought to you by Cornblow and Cornblow, the official law firm of the process. The Colony Meadery, the official gluten-free booze made from honey of the process. Rescue Mead coming out March 16th. And LL Pavorsky Jewelers, Rights Ricky Sanchez listeners, go to get engaged on today's pod. Finally, someone has written a book entirely about our podcast. Um, it actually wasn't. It should have been. It wasn't. We did get a chapter. We'll talk to your own Weitzman, who wrote Tanking to the Top, which comes out on March 17th and takes you basically from Iverson. I mean, he does give a lot of perspective. It basically starts with Billy King and Iverson, um, takes you through Bynum and then through the entire process uh, and an entire chapter on the Ricky, which yeah. is awesome. He really yeah. scratched my context itch, as we'll talk about. Yes. Yes, he gives a lot. And we talked to him about everything. Uh, it's, it's real fun. It's a good book, and it's a good chat with your own, so we hope you enjoy it. April 11th is Flip the Switch. Uh, we released the, uh, the art for the, the T-shirt that will be sold there, which is based on Metallica's Master of Puppets album. Um, uh, Abby is doing some of her best drawings for posters to be sold there. She did the uh, Once Upon a Time in Philadelphia one, the uh, the Oscar from her Oscar series. That'll be there. Sixers Adam, I ordered the giant driver's licenses um, today. So not only will Adam be able to hold up a driver's license, but if you're taking your picture with Adam, you can also hold up a driver's license. 15 bucks for tickets. We're going to do a live pod. We're going to watch the game. Um, 75 bucks for VIP. Hang out with us with an open bar, tamale bar, and a commemorative poster. It'll be a lot of fun. Right to rickysanchez.com, April 11th at Underground Arts. Without any further ado, Amos and the chef. Larry, sweetie, the man is We will write y'all, we will write, even when it went wrong, we will write, we was right y'all, we will write, so say the name, say the name, we will write y'all, we will write, even when it went wrong, we will write, we will write y'all, we will write, so say the name, say the name, say the name. Welcome to the Rice Ricky Sanchez podcast. I'm Spike Eskin, along with a guy who uh, who has a lot of questions about context. That is Mike Levin. Yeah, we had a nice interview. I like your own. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I really, we, we kind of grill him on it, but I really, neither of us were prepared to like this book. No, no, yeah, we, we, <laughs> we, we make that very clear to him. So, yeah, I didn't want to like it, and I did. So, um, I thought style, I didn't get a chance to talk about it. I thought stylistically he makes some interesting choices about like, you know, fast forwarding in time and then like, you know, rewinding in the next paragraph for like a a more context of how we got here and like more insight into who these people are. I, I, I found it not just like straight up linear in a, in a kind of boring way, but I thought it was really, uh, it kept my attention really, really nicely. Yeah, and let this be a, a, a note to authors around the world. Uh, name a chapter of, around us. and uh, <laughs> I, So please enjoy our chat with, um, with Jeroen Weitzman, who is the author of the first of seven books about the process, Tanking to the Top, 
which comes out March 17th, and uh, you can pre-order now on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Jeroen Weitzman, I, I have to congratulate you. As I was telling Mike before you signed on, you were... Uh, I wanted it to be undefeated in everyone but Andrew Unterberger being able to figure out the process of recording this without, <laughs> like, on the first try. And <laughs> you, you, you've kept it undefeated. So congratulations. I am a, uh, I'm a tech wizard, as everyone yeah. who knows me would say. So uh, I, I guess my first question off the top, and I will, I'm going to open this up with a compliment. And it will sound backhanded, but it is not backhanded. It is well, an actual compliment. Because listening to the show the past bit, I feel like this is going to be an airing of grievances, Seinfeld. No, no, no. So. <laughs> In some ways, that's what the whole podcast is always. Yeah, that's okay. the whole bit. It really has very little to do with the grievances have very little to do with you. I will say this. Before, uh, before you reached out and uh, I heard you were writing the book, mm-hmm. I, like, I, I had very little like, idea of, of your like, writing. I, mm-hmm. didn't, I didn't really know. And, uh, and this is unfair at this point, but I'm like, guy that's writing the process book too quickly, Bleacher Report guy that I don't know, mm-hmm. um, here we go. And I read like the first 20 pages and I was like, oh, He's a good writer. And <laughs> Thank you. I, I, I will say this for a story that, and there's some nuggets in there that I thought were, were interesting and we didn't know before, and um, putting it in context. But for a story that generally I knew the, the skeleton of, and like you weren't telling me something like new in terms of like what happened in, the, in a very general sense, I thought it was a really good read, and I thought you did a good job writing it, and I thought that you captured the essence of a lot of things that somebody who had lived through it as we had um, may, may not have picked up if he didn't live through it as well. So I thought you did a good job with that, and I, I thought the book was really good. No, I appreciate that a lot. It's actually like, I call it like an interloper in Sixers land, right, as I jumped in here, and like stuff... <laughs> this whole thing is crazy. Like all the little controversies that I kind of had forgotten about that just even trying to go through how to put those into a coherent paragraph. It's a lot. It's crazy. It's certainly a lot. Like times like <laughs> the example I bring up is like Joel's first knee injury and trying, like, I have PTSD of like queuing up a, maybe like one of those blog websites um, where they have the whole timeline of a t- whole timeline of Embiid's knee injury and just trying to put that into one paragraph. And that is not easy. Um, so yeah, I say that as a, to two people who, or coming, or coming from one person who is literally in the book. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it was good. I, I liked it, and I, I did learn a lot um, from it. There were a bunch of nuggets that I did not know, and I want to talk about uh, sure. a few of them. Um, but I guess, like, I want to hear before, like, you, you said you were an interloper, but, like, your perspective before you started writing this book and now that you have, because for me it's always, like, Every time Dan Devine wrote a great article in The Ringer about about the, where the Sixers are, yeah. and he kept going back and giving more context to right. what to what everything was. And and the thing I appreciated about this book was it's just like a book of context, um, because so often it just gets the story of the process and Sam and and where the Sixers are so often gets just thrown around as if like well here it is and then and you know narratives shape and form uh, without any real adherence to the truth. Uh, there, there was in in your very Bleacher Report an article about how uh, Markel Fultz was hated by the entire city of Philadelphia, which yeah, uh, is bullshit. That. <laughs> is is just wrong. Um, so I appreciated and and respected um, personally and uh, as a 
as as a piece of good writing that you took the time and went through uh, and went went through and, and gave us all the context. But I want to know like you before the book versus you now, like how in do you feel? How much is your brain scrambled and broken? And like, do you feel, are you, you know, are you one of us? Like, I guess is what I'm asking. And yeah, go for it. Well, I was gonna say, you have to answer the one of us thing. I don't know. But I do. I mean, it's funny. I think I wrote this even like coming in. I thought I was writing and it's, it's, it's better than I didn't. But like, I thought this would be closer to a Moneyball 2.0 thing, you know, basketball. Um, you know, Sam Hankey, genius, blah, blah, blah. And some of that stuff is in there. But it ended up being more about the palace intrigue stuff, which, to be honest, is more fun. But I think that's really the story more than the idea of team building. Like, that's kind of more boring. That's more boring to, for me to think about. Um, yeah, my brain is really scrambled, right? I have Sixers brain for sure. Um, I don't know, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know how you guys do it. I'm laughing. Like you guys, I, I listen to you guys. I'm not just saying this, like, because I, I, I think that's actually the, that's the answer, right? I'm done with this book, and I still feel like listening to you guys and other podcasts. Why? I don't know. I'm not around the team so much right now. Um, I don't think they want me around them so much. It's not like I have much going on Sixers reporting wise, um, but just something about keeping up with it. It's a, uh, it's a different animal. The Sixers. That is, uh, that is for sure. The, I. So give me your, so you go, when, when did you start the process of, like, when did you decide to write the book and when did that, that process start? Yeah, I started, I was covering them for the, for Bleacher Report during the playoffs. I think it was the 2017, 2018 season, the first year in the playoffs. Is that the year? Okay. Um, so the Celtics, the Celtics. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So I was around the, the Heat series, the Celtics series, and I had done like a Ben profile earlier that season. Um, so I had dropped in. A little bit. I live in New York. Um, the teams in New York then sucked, um, so I needed to find some place to write about that was kind of locally. Um, so yeah, I'd be around then, and thought, <laughs> you guys will laugh a part of this. Figured, oh, I always want to write a book. I'm around the team a little bit now. This seems like it could be a cool idea. Also, I haven't seen anybody else think doing a book, so clearly no one else is. That was laughable in <laughs> hindsight. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was a separate thing. I think the Sixers. That I think um, Sixers Communications told me at one point that like seven people have reached out about books. Um, I think that was an exaggeration or maybe yeah, to try to get you to not do it. Maybe. Yeah. Or yeah. there's a difference for like, I, and I explained this or I tried saying this, like there's a difference when somebody says I have a book deal and a book is coming out versus, Hey, I'd like to write a book. Would you guys like to participate? Right. Those are two separate conversations. Um, the, yeah. So did that kind of spent the summer working on a proposal, not to get into the whole writing thing, but working on a proposal and talking to an agent and pitching it. And really the start of last season, like I, I signed my contract summer league. What was it? July, 20, is that 2018? Yeah, right. Um, so yeah, I kind of spent basically that so, year doing that. So then, so then, given when you started, and I know mm -hmm. you said that you expected to write a Moneyball book, and it ended up being like sort of a um, you know a book about the a power narrative almost. Mm -hmm. But aside from that, what was the thing that you would say from your reporting and your interviewing? Like if there was one thing, specific or general, that surprised you most that you didn't expect, what would that thing be? Um, I mean, what, I don't know if this is the right answer, the, the exact answer to your question. I thought at some point the Sixers would come around to participating a little more, right? I really thought mm -hmm. that. I knew I wasn't surprised when they said no at first, right? That kind of makes sense, especially like, you know, they don't know me very well. They knew me a little bit, and they probably weren't ready for this book to come out. Um, for the story to come out, I should say, in a book form, right? And it's easier to say, nah, no, all good. Uh, as I kind of figured they would come around a little bit or maybe be less um, 
I want to say, I mean, I'll say combative. Why not? Right? Like telling people not to talk and things like that. Um, and I, that threw me off um, or surprised me. Yeah, that, that's the end. I don't know if that's the answer to the question, but that's the thing that no. I did not necessarily expect. Yeah, we could have told you that from the like, <laughs> deal early. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One, yeah. So one of the things that this essentially, you know, there's all the details in the book, and I, I do have a bunch of questions and, and, and passages that I want to touch on. Um, but the the stepping way back and mm-hmm. dealing with this as like a human interest story, mm-hmm. uh, it seems like not maybe not the lesson, but the the takeaway is how hard it is to go into a world where there are a number you know of different competing personalities that all have a vested interest in keeping things the way they are. And uh, how hard it is to sort of like overturn the establishment conventional wisdom um, of how you build a team and how you create relationships and how you talk to the press and how you deal with agents and all that stuff. And uh, no more that 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 to me was like the biggest takeaway of watching of watching like so many uh, so many times that Hinky seemed to fail in that sense that that. Or, or other people complained about Hinky in that sense, and no, and, and there's no greater story, of, of or at least in the satisfying end, because there's heartbreaking stuff about how uh, Hinky failed. But on the satisfying part of seeing those establishment type uh, basketball lifers that are just sort of run of the mill whatevers is uh, is the Rod Thorne story. Which, which uh, one is that? The with the, uh, where he's sitting with the scouts. The, yeah, the greatest the, story of all time. Can you uh, can you explain some of that story? Yeah, that's one of my favorites. So Sam gets hired. What is it? I guess May 2013, right? Right, pretty close to the draft, right? Yeah. And it's kind of it's 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 close, and he's kind of running. You know, they got to prepare. Um, and he's Sashin Gupta, who I'm. So y'all, you're, I don't have to explain, right? This may mm-hmm. be the one podcast where I don't have to explain who that is to. Um, that's right. Right. So he's brought in. He's a consultant. Then I think officially, he's not officially on like the executive or whatever. But basically, him and Sam spend the time. It's them two, and the scouts are outside. And the week of the draft, one night, a bunch of the scouts are there, and Sam and Sasha are in his office, and the door's closed. And Rod Thorne, who is like you said, like the the epitome, if you want to show the NBA establishment, that is him, right? It is Rod Thorne. Um, so much so, right? Fast forwarding, that guy was. It's funny that he was the other name that the one of the other M- names the NBA had floated to Josh Harris about bringing in, you know, with Jer- Jerry Colangelo or Rod Thorne. Predictable. Right? Those are the guys, right? That's the guy. So Rod Thorne's sitting there with the scouts, and he's just furious because who's Sam Hinkie? Who's this guy? Like, and why is he not involving me and all that? And he essentially goes into his office, and another scout goes in there, and they see Rod Thorne has all this memorabilia in his office, and they see, and he says like, oh, what's that? And Rod Thorne says, you can have it, and they end up, he ends up auctioning off all this uh, or playing a game like who's the Sixers all-time leading scorer? How many points did this guy average this game? He was and doing Quizzo. He right. was doing Quizzo with his own shit. <laughs> right. Yeah. While in the room, well, like the next room over, Hinky is with the door closed with, with like, Sashin of like yeah. basically planning the draft strategy. <laughs> planning process step one. And like one, they give this guy Courtney Whitty, who was a former Sixers executive, had given Rod Thorne a bottle of wine as a gift once. And that ended up being brought out. And like Rod Thorne's auctioning or <laughs> giving that as an answer. And Whitty's just sitting there quietly, not saying, hey, that was a gift. Um, one other thing is like, there's, I mean, something was, um, I think it was like a wilt, a piece of the floor from was Hershey, I guess. Where Will yeah. yeah, they have a lot of that. Points. Yeah. Like they, they have so much of that, like, I don't know. They've given it out at a lot of games. They have like 
a whole sign made out of it. At, at this point, the floor facility. is you know uh, a football yeah. field long. I was yes, say, how much right. floor? Can, there's only how much floor can you actually have? Like that's not right. ever, it's not never ending. Um, yeah, yeah, that was one of my favorite. I love that's one of those stories when I heard it. I was like, oh, this is so great. I but the, the thing great. that is so I think made me empathize with Rod a little bit, although he's sitting outside the door like a like a child and a petulant kid in a really fun way, is like the door's closed. They're on the outs of it. All of a sudden, Hinky and, and Sasha come out, and they're like, you guys are still here? You, you can go. Like, what are you doing right. here? That's Which the, the amount part. of times that that's happened to me in a writer's room when the showrunner <laughs> is, like, deciding the show and like, comes back and sees the writers, is like, what are you guys? Oh, I guess I never dismissed you. Like, that that's, level of, oh, that's, really good. That's fantastic. That's the other part, right? That's the part I left out, right? That these guys, Sam was a new boss, and nobody wants to go home, right? You don't know what the deal is. It's like, I guess my new boss is here. I got to stay until he says. You know, that, that is great. Right? We, we can all relate to that. So, yeah, I guess in that moment, we all wore or are Rod Thorne for the first time. <laughs> um, so, well, I, and, and by the way, like, you, you, you said you thought you were going to write Moneyball. Like, that's basically a Moneyball scene. I mean, it, yes. it's not exactly yes. the Moneyball scene, but it is the, hey, Scouts, I used you for what I needed you for. Now we're going to go make the decisions without you is, is definitely a Moneyball scene for sure. Just missing, uh, like, how does he look in jeans, right? That's like the uh, yeah. missing. Yep. <laughs> um, was there anything, so, you know, you were saying, am I, you know, am I one of you or, or something like that? Is there any, this is a good question for it. As you, you were doing your reporting, mm -hmm. was there anything that you found out that made you sort of retroactively angry? The answer better be yes. <laughs> <laughs> retroactively angry. Um, so, yeah, I guess I'm not, right? I, I did... No, the answer is no to that, unfortunately. Okay. I mean, I hear, oh, I, hear, I hear what you guys are saying. I, I do not have the, uh, and I'm not saying this as highbrow journalism guy. I don't, I don't vote. I don't root any of that. But I did... I did look at this from that perspective. I will say, um, you know, not angry. The, mo the closest I get to that is because, like, I'll say the Sixers did not make my life easy. Like, my life could have been easier the past year. Um, I am Same. Not, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so there you go. So we're the opposite. I guess and this is the opposite. And I probably shouldn't say this, but whatever. Like, I am not necessarily upset sometimes when things go wrong. How about that? It doesn't affect my coverage, but uh, I, maybe schadenfreude is the word, right, that, uh, that can peak up every now and then. The thing that I, and we'll just bounce around here, the thing that I really sure. wanted to uh, toss the book uh, against the wall was yeah, the uh, Scott O'Neill <laughs> chapter. Ah, yes. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, uh, Yaron and I were emailing about So we're going to put, just so everyone knows, and this will come, when are we doing this, next week or the week after? Uh, I think that might be the oh, week, week after probably. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so right before the book comes out, we're going to uh, send out in our newsletter an excerpt from the book. And I was emailing with your own about what chapter it would be. And basically I'd settled on you fucking decide. But then I read <laughs> the coup. I read the Scott O'Neill chapter and I was like, dude, the, the, the chapter has got to be the coup. Uh, like th that's it. So yeah, it is a fucking boy. You painted, uh, you painted the picture, man. You really did. I tried to be nice to Scott. I gave the complimentary, you know, like worked hard in the sales team. They all love him. I, I made sure that stuff got in there as well. But uh, yeah, no, the, uh, that whole thing. Should I say the quote, like what he said to me? Should I just say it? Do say you know? it. We yeah, already said it on yeah, Howard Beck's. So, Come on. Right. Secondhand oh, yeah, quote right here. <laughs> so, this story's crazy, though. I mean, well, I'll give the whole... So so I go up to Scott O'Neill at one point. I introduce myself to him at a... Uh, it was a Hornets game, I believe. Um, it always is. It, or, so, or actually, I said Hornets game. I'm wrong. So it's, no, it's a Pistons game. I'm sorry. But, it's uh, the same. <laughs> there you go. Key to NBA reporting, by the way. Go to a team. Cover the team you want in, like, Milwaukee, in uh, Detroit, Cleveland, Charlotte, Atlanta. Like, that's the move. Um, 
So I go up to him, I say, you know, what I'm doing. He, I mean, he knows, I'm sure, you know, I'm writing this book. And I think I said to him something along the lines of like, you're kind of the process, the boogeyman to process fans. And he says to me, uh, well, Sam did it to himself. Someone had to take the hit. And you know, so if we talk journalistically, oh. if we talk journalistically, he never says off the record, right? I clearly identified myself as a reporter. Um, he never sat down with me for any other sort of interview on or off the record after that. So like maybe if he had, I'd feel differently. But that was that was it. Uh, so I immediately draft, opened up Gmail and emailed that line to myself and knew, <laughs> knew that was going in. Um, yeah, that was pretty that was uh, I was pretty happy after getting that. We take a break from our chat with your own to talk about the official law firm of the process that is Cornblow and Cornblow and Cornblow and Cornblow. Um, I can tell you, um, Cornblow um, would not have run Sam Hinkie right out of town like uh, like a certain CEO of the 76ers did. I'll tell you that. No. Uh, no, none of the Cornblows would have. Cornblow, the, not just the official law firm, the one of the, the premier boutique personal injury law firm in the Delaware Valley. Cornblow will be at Flip the Switch. I have spoken to Rich at, um, at Underground Arts about some Cornblow corn dogs, so we'll have that at Flip the Switch as well. Um, he, I think the thing that is most important about Cornblow and, and something that came across to me and comes across to me every time I talk to him is how passionate he is about this and he cares. And you know, like, a, a personal injury lawsuit is a long, arduous process. And to have the person who is in charge of it really care about the outcome, really want to get the, the best for his clients is really, really important. And I think liking your job and wanting to do the best is really important. And Adam is like that. And they show in the results some of the biggest medical malpractice results in all of the Delaware Valley. Um, and it's not just that, all sorts of personal injury, injured at work, slip and fall, car accidents, everything. If you're injured in any way, don't just shrug it off don't be a hero. That's what he likes to say. Just give him a call. You don't pay anything or shoot him an email. You don't pay anything until there is a result for you. Um, 215-576-7200. Ask for Adam or email cornblow at cornblow and cornblow.com. Cornblow spelled with a K, the and in the email address is spelled A-N-D, and the rest is up to you. Cornblow and Cornblow, the official law firm of the process. Back to our chat with your own. Mm. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, he never said off the record, but there are he has certainly done enough things on Twitter with fans, uh, both in DMs and publicly, yes. uh, and said things that would, would not surprise anyone that he would say something so, like, smug. And by the way, it's not like Sam, you, you know, that, that in that 13-page letter, the resignation letter he wrote, he was not, there was a lot of metaphoric stuff in there. There was nothing metaphoric about... Scott O'Neill is going to yeah. take everybody's money when it's time. Right. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Yeah, yeah I, I, don't think, I, I don't think there was any love lost on either side of that one. That was the one time he did not reference, like, the MOA or some random, you know, tribe yeah. or whatever. He, he, went straight, he went straight to it on that one. I know? would have loved one, like, it was sort of, like, in the middle of a 13-page, just one, like, fuck that dude. Just, like, give me one... <laughs> It's like if I see him on the street, I'll beat his ass. Like I want, like come on, we, give me. You kind of got it. That's part. I mean, you got pretty close, right? For Sam, that's probably as close as you get. The little, I think that's uh, right. The, bite, the biting sarcasm. I mean, I don't what? know. Mike, you're the one who goes on dates with him, right? That was in the book, right? You okay, so that's the next thing. <laughs> so okay, so I'm here. I am reading this book, enjoying myself. All of a sudden, and I look at the. I'm glancing at the footnotes. There's a couple of nice footnotes, whatever. All of a sudden, 
The fucking bottom of page, page one. What is it? I, I have a book in front of me. 161. Levin had also sat down with Hinky three times for <laughs> off-the-record chats. Quote from Andrew Sharp. <laughs> he would always come back extra buoyant after those. <laughs> it was like someone coming home from a good date. I yelled, oh, fuck you. <laughs> Listen, I, I, just, I just report what I'm told. You know? I know, but it's mostly for Sharp. Um, <laughs> but just bury that in the footnote. Fucking Sharp, Sharp claiming that I have fucking hinky tinglies or whatever. Well, you did. I mean, you probably did. And, sure. and by the way, forgetting about the off-the-record conversations, your own basically says the same thing in the right Ricky Sanchez chapter at about our first interview with him. But uh, <laughs> he does not mention on the podcast... When Hickey's phone drops out and we leave <laughs> that, that part in there. That was generous of, of your own, yeah, I think. They, you're, well, you're welcome. I'm trying to look um, out a little bit. So why, why don't we go to, to Hinky? What, sure. Uh, you, you know, I, I think you outline a lot of his, I think you, you give a, a pretty fair, uh, drew a, a pretty fair picture of him in there. What do you think was the biggest, is the biggest misconception of, of him after doing all of this reporting? Positive or negative? Yeah, that's fun. That's a good question. Um, I mean, it's funny because like after that, I thought that Chris. Ba- this is a different. But I thought that Chris Ballard profile was great when he did, and I used a lot. I referenced that a lot because um, he kind of summed up. Like, there's a thing at one point in the Hinky in the Hinky conversation, it became this thing about well, he's not actually like the guy you think. You know, he squatted 500 pounds or whatever. And yeah. Yeah, but also he's also what you think, right? In terms of how he acts and thinks and talks, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. It's just you know, it's it's both. That's the case. Um, the biggest misconception, I don't know. I mean, not misconception. The part about his younger brother, I and I wish I yeah. wish I could have unpacked this more. And I just I don't I didn't feel comfortable doing so, and I would love to have asked, like, not to get into detail. I mean, his younger brother killed himself, shot, committed suicide when, and Sam was, I believe. Uh, maybe it was his older brother, actually. I'm his sorry. older brother, Sam, yeah. Older brother, right? Sam was about 10, his older brother 17. It's something Sam Hinky doesn't like brought up, and I'm just, and I, I have no answer. I'm bringing this up without an answer, and probably not even great to do that. I'm just, I would be very curious to know how that affected him going forward. I thought, you know, I found this quote where he kind of talked about how he found solace in basketball after, mm-hmm. um, and like a friend's dad brings him on the court and they play, and that made a big difference to him. And I do think maybe that's a good answer. Like I do think he's someone who believes for all the, you know, we talk about the cold calculations and all that stuff. I do think he's also somebody who believes in the, I'll call, we can call it the quote unquote corny, but like this magic of sports and all that stuff. And it sounds corny, but I, I think that is there, and there is that part beneath the numbers. I think that uh, another thing you did really well in this book is sort of humanize everyone except for Scott O'Neill. Um, and <laughs> who is the, not human? Who is no. debatably human? Uh, yeah. And the, even the Julia Lokifer chapter yeah, um, yeah. really gets into like what he was going through at the time, and and obviously I, I was expecting that for Embiid, and I was expecting that for you know Hinky, and as, as far as his brother goes, and the scene of like Embiid after his brother died, and like sitting with with Brett and and Hinky in the I think it was a hotel room. Uh, that night and like all mm-hmm. that, it, it feels very alive and it feels very like it's just these people are making decisions that they think are in the best interest of whatever and the players aren't you know are doing their best and aren't as good as they could have been or, or you know or you know with Nerlens are not as you know adult as you'd want them to be uh, at any point in, in in at least his time with with Philly um, but you get into 
everybody's backstory in a way that makes it feel like you can relate to them, even though these are, you know, incredible athletes making millions of dollars. Yeah, for honestly, thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, I, you try to, right? It's not, and like, I do try to tell the line, like, you don't want to excuse behavior or you don't want to say A happened because of B, but just, I do think, you know, it's, a, it's corny, but like, they are, the, it, people are three-dimensional, right? And there's like more to it. So it doesn't mean, right? So Nerland, uh, not Nerland, Jaleel Okafor has this horrible thing where his mom basically dies in front of him and you know, he's, he's joking around, not realizing that she's dying, right, to make it, put it simply. And, like, does that, is that why he has his issues when he gets to Philadelphia? Not all of it, but I'm sure it contributes, right? It definitely lends to it. And it's, like, you know, things aren't black and white, I guess. And that was kind of one of the biggest things of the whole book, right? Just none of it's black and white. It's all gray. Well, so I, I guess th that leads to a, a good question because there sure. are – we had heard, well, I, I guess I think it's a good question. That'll be up to the listener and you. Uh, <laughs> it, it leads to a question I was thinking of. So you, you outline, and some of the stuff we do know and some of the stuff we didn't, and I think specifically the stuff about Embiid's, um, Embiid's sort of uh, misbehavior the, the year after his brother passed away mm -hmm. uh, behind the scenes, leading to, by the way, and I'll read the quote from Brett Brown, um, uh, wait, hold on. Um, oh, man, where is it? It's something to the effect of we're all going to get fired because this guy's not in shape. Basically. Right, so that, that was last year. Yeah, 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 last year. Yeah, it's, uh, um, out, yeah Miami, yep. <laughs> so, so why do you... So Okafor, Noel, and Bede yep. all have, I, I would say, more than you would figure problems behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And we can all point to the actual genesis of them and and you can point as you just said julia the 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 reason that julia Okafor was that way the reason that neuroland snowell was that way but it does seem like those problems were allowed to um just show themselves in a way and expand in a way with the sixers that you would hope that it wouldn't happen why do you think they were so incapable of containing those not from the public finding out but why were they so incapable of helping those players get on a, a better path yeah no i think that that's one of the through line like it's kind of i kind of joke it not joke i kind of call it like the original sin like it starts with Nerlens, right and so if you i mean talking to people like all the people i talk to i mean brett he's the one that gets the most blame from people who are around the team for that stuff right and maybe it's not fair but just the idea that he came in as a players coach and he and and Brett would push back on this and people close to him would push back on this like they would say we find Nerlens a lot I don't know what else to do maybe I mean I guess I haven't been inside enough NBA locker rooms to know whether that's usually the case whether a fine always works and you know if you find a guy hundred thousand dollars or whatever the number is for like you know Nerlens was missing planes or showing up late to planes um and things like that um if you find him does that usually work and the Sixers had the one guy who it doesn't I guess I find that hard to believe. So Brett's certainly yeah. one of the through lines there in terms of that. Like I put this in the book. There's a story where they're holding the team plane for New Orleans' rookie year when he's not even playing. And like Jason Richardson sitting on the plane saying, I know we're not holding the plane for no rookie and just yelling. And New Orleans comes on and they hold it. And no one says anything. They take off. And people say Sam was responsible for this too. Like Sam wasn't around... He wasn't spending a lot of time in practices um, that was, those early years. That wasn't where he was devoting his time. I mean, this isn't like a big thing. Like, this isn't a new thing. People, 
he was devoting his time to scouting, preparing for the draft, and we all know this, right? And he also, and this, there's a logic to this, one of his things, I think I quoted somebody saying this, the idea that he thought he had to put a line, a wall between him and the coaching staff for the reason that they had different incentives, and that was a problem as well, right? Like, he, Sam wasn't trying to build a team who could win every game, um, and the coaching staff, that's what they're going to try to do. So I get that, but there's probably, again, there's probably a middle ground. So to answer your question, yeah, I mean, people would say it's just, it started back then, and what happened, so you have that in New Orleans, and then Jaleel, and then Joel comes in, and Joel's doing a lot, and they have trouble containing it, and then, like, it's like, it's like a, I mean, I'm seeing a home like a virus, but, like, it gets too big, and once it gets too big, or Joel gets too powerful, and, you know, these are already the way things were, then it's too late, nothing you can do, and I think that would kind of be the answer. Yeah, there's a through line in this book of of uh, Brett failing to be like a disciplinarian, and right. and there's a there's a quote from the chapter where where Brett gets hired, um, where people are uh, the moves shocked uh, holdovers from previous regime uh, in the Sixers front office and around the league. Uh, mm-hmm. Many viewed Brown as quote a workout guy. Yep. And we're stunned that the Sixers would choose a coach who in the NBA had never been more than a number two assistant. Hinky wasn't concerned. Quote, he's the perfect coach to get us through these first few years, he told a colleague. So that was interesting to me. Um, I wonder if, if uh, people still look at Brett as like a glorified workout guy, uh, a glorified culture guy. If, if, if like him as a, as a head coach after whatever, six or seven years now, um, is still fighting against the idea that he's not a really, like, seen as an X's and O's type guy. I think he is, right? I I'm not even saying it's fair. Like, I, you know, talking to people now, like, I'm always amazed people, I mean, he made this a coach thing and people, like, picking on the Sixers. I, he does not seem like he's a, he's a, uh, when you t- if you talk to, like, scouts, and not to be that guy, if you talk to scouts around the league and stuff like that, it's, it's not, he doesn't often get mentioned as, oh, that guy's a genius X and O's. And I honestly, I don't know enough to know whether that's fair or not. I don't necessarily think it totally is. Like, I think the criticisms in terms of the uh, disciplinary and stuff, I think that stuff's fair, and I think, and I, I think if you, you know, got him on true serum, he would probably admit and probably wish he did things a little differently before it became too late. But then you look at a guy like John Beeline and a plenty of other, Doug Collins That's and Scott exactly. Skiles, like guys that have worn out their welcome place after place after place well, for like being a disciplinarian type, like, in, you know, these, treating these people like their kids, like, they, like you can do to a middle school team. And here Brett has survived all these years and, and has so seemingly the backing of his players. I, th- I think one, one interesting thing there is that the, the I, I think it's got to be a from the top thing it can't just be the coach right mm-hmm. like I, I think there's a difference my opinion is it can't just be the coach is an asshole disciplinarian like those guys and it it can't just be like, I think part of the problem was you're saying that Hinky wasn't around and sort of left them to do that thing I don't know if that can happen especially with a a, a front office and a, an ownership and all of these things that were all new yes. without a, any sort of backing. And there was no one to set the culture. And I think that was the problem, especially with so many changing players. And that's why it put Brett in such a uh, vulnerable position in that way. That would be my opinion. Thinking back, one of the things that going through all this that surprised me the most is that like that they didn't have an Elton Brand type as an assistant GM. You know, Sam surrounded himself. For the whole coaching staff, almost every single coach was a young, new assistant coach, like Billy Langs from Villanova. A guy, you know, Lloyd Pierce was, I don't know, how old was he? What, 35, 40, whatever he was. Like, it wasn't, they didn't have a life for assistant coach on the bench. And the, the main group and the executives, it was Sam, it was Sasha, and it was Ben Falk. And those were all really smart guys. But 
I'm surprised, you know, like Sam's always talking about different views of the room and, you know, that's very Silicon Valley, right? That's the big thing there is you want all these different perspectives and all that. And I, I don't know why they never brought in, I'll say Elton Brand because he's a perfect example, right? It feels like having a guy like that in the main, in the executive office, in the room, in the A group, on the bench or whatever, I feels like that would have made a big difference. Like you said, you have a good point. Everything was new here. The owners, coaching staff, all of the executive, these guys are all new, all in new positions. And I'm surprised they didn't realize that or just didn't care. I don't know. It's, I'm surprised. Well, like one of the things about Spolstra is, I mean, not to, to compliment the, the heat <laughs> thing, but one of the things about Spolstra is that he has Pat Riley behind him. And yes. that is a different thing. You know, it gives you the ability to not have to be an asshole to, to, to make it what you say goes because they know that they can't go above you to somebody else to get them to say differently. I think um, I think that was a story, right? That like was it Ian Thompson's book that like that first year I think he had that like they went into Riley's office, LeBron here yeah, guys LeBron and said did. something, and he's like Riley's like get out, basically get out of here. It ain't happening, yeah. and that was it. Yeah. So um, the uh, you mentioned it's a good thing to ask about Brett because there was one thing I thought was ironic was a coach about you talked about Hinky hiring Lance Pearson and putting <laughs> yeah. him on the coaching staff. Good Twitter follow. He, yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's funny. Like, I don't know Lance. I only know him from Twitter. Like, he he does appear sometimes on Twitter to be unhinged. I, I guess I, I. It's the strangest thing. He can go from normal to like sort of unhinged sometimes. I don't know. But yeah. <laughs> this, this is a basketball thing. So the basketball thing is he says in there they were talking about, and this is a very process over results thing. Mm-hmm. Is that they wanted to judge the players, and, and Roten tells a story about this too, about the, the quality of shots they were taking, the plays they were making, not the results of the plays. And, 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 and the goal was, as Pearson said, to lay a foundation of a certain offense and a certain defense so when the time came, the foundation would be set of how to play this game. Do you find it ironic that both versions of this team of the last two years that were the teams that were to quote unquote win one being sort of centered around butler who does not like ball movement and you even mentioned refused to shoot open shots for a certain period because he didn't want to pass the ball around and this one without three-point shooting and without creation that the teams that they created to win can't even really play the system that they were trying, the foundation that they were trying to lay down. Yeah, I do. I was surprised how quickly Brett kind of like abandoned slash admitted that the case last year. Like if you remember after Butler, they traded for Butler and he started talking about how we realized, and I think the Boston series, you guys might have mentioned, I don't know, but the Boston series, I think the playoff Boston series like that, if you want to kind of go to a, a moment that led to where the Sixers are now, I think that series is it in terms of a lot of their decision making and what informed what they uh, leading to these decisions and these things that happen now in terms of what the team looks like. Not but enough that, confetti. What did you say? Not enough confetti. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so they trade for Butler and Brad starts talking about, you know, pass is king, but really we realized if we're down, if it's 94-94, and for some reason he always says 94-94. I don't know why. I don't know. That's that's never the score late <laughs> in the fourth quarter anymore. But <laughs> you need to update that. But um, if it's 94-94, we realize, you know, you need a guy who can put the ball in his hands. And I think I even asked Brad about that last year because he said something along the lines like we realized passing it doesn't work as well. 
And it was one of the things where he then, you know, I asked next day, yeah, you said this? And he said, no, I didn't say that. It's not what I said. I just said this. Um, but yeah, I was surprised how quickly to answer your question, Spike. Yeah, I am surprised. Like, it's, it is ironic. It's strange that they kind of abandoned this whole plan. Or maybe it not, shouldn't be so surprising given how things have gone. But that they had this whole plan and that it's like, oh, okay, that didn't work in one series. Let's, uh, let's change it all. Hey, we have something very, very special to tell you about with one of our excellent sponsors, the Colony Meadery. Perhaps you've heard Rescue Mead, the mead with shelter dogs and cats from uh, the Providence Animal Center and the Brandywine SPCA is coming out on March 16th online at colonymeadery.com. Use code Ricky for five bucks off. And in person at the Allentown, the Colony Meadery Allentown Tap Room on March 20th. I'm going to head up there for that. I'm going to bring Rebel. Um, we reached out to Providence, who we love, and Brandywine SPCA, who we love. And we said, give us, we said to each of them, give us four of your longest-term residents. And that's what they did. And we put them on the cans. That rules. So what's that? Noodles? Fucking I said that noodles. rules, but also oh. noodles. Well, noodles is one of the dogs. Really? Um, yeah. Yeah, noodles is one of the dogs. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Noodles, uh, Zenubian, uh, Otto, Star. I'm trying to remember all the pet names. It's it's awesome. So um, it's a really neat thing. We stole the idea from a couple of breweries who did it, but this is the first time it's been on a meat can. And really, if you're stealing the idea to get long-term shelter pets adopted, there's nothing wrong with stealing that idea. So there will only be 200 cases um, of the of the mead, and it goes on sale on the 16th. The first 76 cases cases that uh, are purchased get a poster signed by one of the pets of the meadery's management team, and I think we're going to get Rebel to try to sign one of them too. Um, it's just it's a really cool idea, and a, a, a good portion of the proceeds also go to the uh, the shelters as well. Um, and thank you to everyone who has covered it. Fox 29 covered it. KYW News Radio covered it. Um, I think 6ABC covered it. Barstool fucking posted it on their website and Twitter yesterday, which is amazing. Weird. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. So thank you, everyone, for covering it. And get the fucking mead. Get rescue mead. Um, and it's in cans, which means this is session mead, which I like better. It's like a, a carbonated mead as opposed to the like the, the wine meads, which are higher alcohol but not carbonated like that one. So um, colonymeadery.com, colonymeadery.com, and come up for the release of Rescue Mead on March 20th. Again, it goes on sale March 16th. M- noodles. Fucking noodles. Uh, must be 21 to drink. Please get buzzed responsibly. Uh, back to the Ricky. I, you do a good job pivoting a little bit here. You do a good job, uh, better than any article I've ever read, of, because of, uh, this is at least the first Process Sixers book that I've read. So this is, you, you're, you're treading on, on new ground for me. <laughs> yeah. And the expectations were high. And I, and I like Spike, uh, was not disappointed, even though I deeply intended to be. Um, <laughs> And you do a really good job of showing Embiid's arc from, like, incredibly shy in, in certain spaces and incredibly, like, lacking in confidence um, as far back as his high school team and then the same thing at Kansas when Tark Black dunked all over him and then uh, slowly realizing how good he can be with, with sort of the, the urging from his college coach, Bill Self, um, and it kind of culminates for me in the story of Embiid working out for for uh, David yeah. Griffin and the Cavs. Can you talk about that yeah. story? 
Yeah, I love that. So this Embiid. I mean, he was gonna, the Cavaliers wanted him. He was great. He um, he had a workout for them. They had the number one pick. <laughs> they had the number one pick, right? It was the it was in the wake of uh, LeBron had just left. They needed a new coach. David Griffin had spent a lot of time in Kansas. Like he had thought about hiring or wanted to hire Bill Self as his coach. So they had spent a lot of time around that Kansas team. And uh, you know that was like Wiggins, the Wiggins and B team. Uh, everyone knew Wiggins was good, or I shouldn't say knew. Everyone thought Wiggins was good, but Embiid was the guy who uh, everyone you know they realized there was something different there. He, Embiid goes, he has a workout with Bismack Biombo, hurts his foot, um, nothing. They don't think anything of it. Works out with the Cavaliers, goes to Cleveland for a workout. Um, and that dinner, I think it's the night before the workout or after, now I'm going to forget, but orders three slices of chocolate cake, which is just <laughs> a classic, because <laughs> who doesn't do that when they're auditioning? Um, yeah. And then uh, he has... By the way, not, not, not the only multiple chocolate cake story about him. No, it's really, it's really laid in there nicely. <laughs> it's, yeah. a, it's, I know, food, the food and Embiid thing is... Uh, it's a, well, it's I'll also a comment that my favorite part of the whole book was that uh, Embiid ordered, ordered uh, after... At some point, when he was like talking to Luke Bamute, he went to Moe's Southwest Grill, which is where I worked at college, and got <laughs> a nice big that? burrito. So that was a big, uh, a nice, uh, yeah. close to home for me. I think the quote was from the coach, like the biggest burrito I'd ever seen. That's um, right. Yeah, a lot of him beat food. I have him eating Nutella at it, like from a spoon when he discovered Nutella. Um, yeah, so <laughs> Cleveland, and it's he like throws Vitaly Potapenko, who's this gigantic guy. He's probably seven feet. He's a former player. He's the Cavs workout guy, assistant coach. He bullies him around. The Cavs say it's the greatest workout they've ever seen, and Embiid ends the workout hitting like seven threes, and after each one, turning to Griffin. Um, and saying, how do you not draft me? Swoosh, you have to draft me. Swoosh, I'm so good. Swoosh, doing that seven times. Looks great. And then wakes up. I, I wish I don't have it open. I guess it's the next morning. Yeah. With his foot hurting. Um, and they realized that he had a fracture. And the Cavs had a mandate to win because like, Dan Gilbert wanted them to win, right? Because owners always make good decisions. And they decided to, that was it. They couldn't draft Joel Embiid. And that's basically how he ends up on the Philadelphia 76ers. I love, I love a mandate to win. As if, if we just if we mandated enough, then we'll do it. Well, that's that's what the Sixers did the last two years. As if they could just decide, hey, it's time to win. Oh, okay. It's, well, just to win then. It's so funny because it's like it, <laughs> the owners have been making these mistakes for I don't know 20, 30, 40, 50. Like, it's not. This is so not new. It just and just repeats itself. One thing. So the, there were a bunch of things that were a while ago in the book. You know. So this podcast. This summer will be seven years old. We've been mm-hmm. doing it for seven years. And the, there was, you know, the Bynum stuff feels like 100 years ago. But yeah. there, there was one, there were a couple moments in the book from early in the process stuff that I can't believe actually happened. <laughs> and one of them was that the Sixers were one and 30. <laughs> like, I, I was like, we were talking about them every week when they were with it. like this is the craziest fucking thing. They were one and thirty. Like I, I honestly, I I was reading that and I felt like I had to read that line for some reason. That is crazier to me even than them starting off O and seventeen or O and eighteen or whatever. One and thirty is fucking bananas. It's just crazy. Is it? Because I also I love that they like every year also they lost like the first eighteen games. Like, you know, yeah. usually usually teams tail off. You know, a lot of these like lottery teams they tail off at the end. You know, they kind of hang in there and then March April yeah. they lose. You know, twenty out of twenty five. The Sixers they were coming out strong. Those teams. <laughs> and that's what I appreciated in in both when you talk about the Sixers those seasons. It was 
they were still the third worst team in the league, or they were still the second worst team in the league. Only exactly. one year were they the worst team in the league in all this embarrassment. And it was really because, like going back to the point that I made about how hard it is to to overcome these systemic, you know, this is how it is type guys around the league, um, he just pissed off so many people because he just refused to play the game. Mm-hmm. Which, and so here, but my question for you guys, like looking back now, you know, even reading that I'm set, reading the book and just thinking about it, do you, like, do you think he was wrong on some of that stuff? Of course. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. like, you gotta, like, there, I, and I think he would admit that and I think he would do it differently if he had time mm-hmm. to, to do this again, whether it was uh, process style or just, you know, taking over a team that's like, you know, a little in, in better shape when he inherited it. Um, absolutely. You, you have to be able to, in any field, you have to be able to, like, endear yourself to the people that are there because that's who you're dealing with. And there's, a, there's right. like, a finite number of people that you can make trades with and you can uh, negotiate salaries with and all that stuff. And especially, you know, you kind of frame us as, you know, Hinky refuses to talk uh, and defend himself that much, except for at the trade deadline and at, on draft night it was really when he would do most of his talking. And everyone, when he mm-hmm. did, it was like, oh, wow, what salient points. Like, I get it. Like, we're infused with this. But you sort of frame us as, like, yes. the guys who are willing to go out there and, and you know, say it's okay and say that, well, explain what, what's going on as, like, it's not that bad. This is all part of the plan. This is totally fine. But us against, like, the entire framework of the NBA, Adam Silver being pissed off, Mark Lazary of the Bucks being pissed off, who, by the way, had a worse record than the Sixers that that year, mm-hmm. uh, like, all these agents that won't deal with them. There's a really great Chris Stapps Porzingis story of, yeah. of Andy Miller, like, refusing to let the Sixers meet with them, and that's a real, uh, we can save that for the book, but that's really great. There's, like, time and time again, there's all these people that, like, eventually... Like, I don't think Hinky thought of himself as this, um, I mean, Jesus-type figure that was being persecuted by so many people. I think he was just uh, every single time defaulting toward what's the most efficient option, what's the most efficient option. And if it's like, you know, getting getting another second-round pick out of the Kings or another pick swap from there or or getting an additional first-round pick from the Magic in the Alfred Payton trade, like, he was just like, I'm going to go for broke on... uh, Yes. On making it the best possible thing for this franchise, and he, you know, killed himself in that, uh, in that framing, and just like ultimately he had to not die, but he had to go because he burned so many bridges because he because he made it so good for the Sixers. The um, the Andre Kirilenko story. Yeah, go ahead, Spike. Well, I I just just to play devil's advocate on this, mm-hmm. and I, I I do think so. If he wanted to survive the entire time, absolutely, he would have needed to do things differently. But much like a a coach, now Brett Brown has been the exception to that rule uh, for a lot of factors. But most much in, in a lot of ways, like the coach that is there for the rebuild is not there for the the for them being competitive for a lot of different reasons. I think you could make the argument that and I'm not sure that I believe it, but I think that you could make the argument that his way of being unbendable gave them so many advantages that while he was not able to survive it, it provided them with so many extra things, assets, draft picks, contracts, um, so on and so forth, that if even if the team had decided to fire him when they did um, or, or you know, force him out when they did, that if they had just done a more uh, 
a, a more comprehensive, smart job of replacing him, that maybe that what he did would have been maybe not the best thing for Sam, but the best thing for the franchise. And maybe the thing is, you know, a lot of times with big companies, and, and by the way, the reason that these owners, and you write about this, like Sam, is because he was he thought like a finance guy. Mm-hmm. A lot of times they bring in a guy to put the, the, the company in position to sell. His entire job is to put the company in position to sell. And that then that CEO, whoever that guy is, leaves. He's gone. A fall guy. And I think you, yeah. Well, not even fall guy. His job is to prep the company, get rid of, trim the fat, yada, yada, yada. You could frame this as, and even the fall guy in this case, that if the plan was to have Hinky go in unapologetically, just fucking do all this, not give a shit about agents, not give a shit about other teams, and just get whatever they could, then it was successful. I think it was bad uh, for him. And I think it was bad for, um, but I don't think if the team had done a better job of replacing him, I don't think it was probably that bad for the team. Yeah, no, sure. I agree. I guess the only thing is like, is the team, it's like a politician, right? If, if he believed, and I'm not saying he would believe this, if the idea is that the best thing for the team is me being in charge, then I, part of my job is me staying in charge also, right? Me staying in the job. And that's the part, right. which I guess powered him for not thinking that way. There's something nice and idealistic about it, I guess. But yeah, I mean, that, that was a problem, right? He didn't think about that at all. Yeah, it's sort of weird. Like it goes in reverse in this instance, right? Like usually you bring in the GM, he has the vision. You bring on a coach, he's the perfect guy. Like like you quoted, he's the perfect guy to lead us through the first few years of this rebuild. Brett Brown, and then Brett eventually leaves. But Sam left before it happened, and it's sort of I, I wonder if Brett making Brett the like front facing, you know, uh, what do you call him? A meat puppet? Somebody call? Him? I think I think meat shield. Meat I think shield. I him that. Uh, <laughs> Maybe, like, I wonder if, if, if Sam had been the meat shield instead of Brett, maybe Sam would still be here and then they could, then you could move Brett. But essentially, Brett becoming the public face, it became, oh, poor Brett, he's just doing all this, he's doing what he can, he's likable, fun accent, yes. handsome, like, all this stuff eventually became, like, well, he's, you know, kind of indispensable at this point because we can't just, you know, people started to like him. I mean, that's why I die when you guys have him on stage last year. And what, what, what do you say to you, Spike? This is the life we've chosen or the life we've lived or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was when I asked him, I was like, hey, Greg Monroe started right. a playoff game for you. That, yeah. And that was his response. This is the life we have chosen. So. <laughs> well, so, so, well, so you, you quote, you quote. All right. So Colangelo takes over uh, or yes. Jerry Colangelo comes in and uh, as like the very, you know, I think there, there were probably episodes of me trying to convince myself it was going to be okay. Um, but you, you quote, uh, Spike and say, welcome to emergency episode of the rights to Ricky Sanchez podcast. The process has, uh, and then I say, I'm interested to see how you finish this sentence. And Spike says, I don't know. And (laughs) I wonder how many podcasts you had to listen to. Too many, man. Too many. (laughs) To get like, you know, every time I have, there's a quote that I, you know, anything I have said something and then it's put into writing, I feel like the dumbest fucking person of all time. <laughs> I feel like I am totally illiterate in text. Uh, but that, I think, I do think you did, you know, there's been a lot of articles written about, like, whatever the fuck we've done here. And yes. I think this this book, more than any of them, has done a good job of, like, illustrating the, like, kind of community confusion, um, living through the emotional up and downs more than most. 
Yeah, I mean, I'll step out. Like, I think your listeners should like. I actually, I think it's pretty cool. What you guys, like the whole community thing, and I think it's cool that you guys take that seriously. Um, and I mean, that's not answering your question or, or responding to your comment. Just as somebody who grew up like listening to sports radio, I kind of believe in that stuff. I don't know. It's pretty cool that you guys do that, and I do believe. I mean, I was, I've been laughing, right? You guys, you guys tweeted, I think, that I gave you a chapter. I want to be like, I gave you guys more than a chapter. I think I credited, yeah. I basically credited you guys for being a reason the false trade and then Burner Gate is basically, you know, it's because of you guys. <laughs> the Rights to Ricky Sanchez podcast is brought to you by a gentleman who did not make the book. Now, Mike, I ask you this. As Tanking to the Top arrives in LL's mailbox, how how quickly do you think he's going to skim the book looking for his name? I mean, almost as fast as you did. <laughs> LL not in the book, but he should have been. I mean, he deserved a line, right? Not a chapter like we got, but he definitely deserved a line. Big time. Yeah, as the original sponsor of the Rights to Ricky Sanchez podcast. I fucking love this guy, and I know I'm going to hear about it, too. Um, I didn't care about whether I was in the book. I know I'm going to get that text message. That's all right. He cares about more important things than whether he's in the book. Um, he cares about uh, getting an engagement ring for you. He has sold engagement rings to 167 Rights to Ricky Sanchez listeners. For some reason, that number is really striking to me tonight. What a huge number, um, including... You know, people who've gotten married in front of us, engaged in front of us. Uh, I married one of the couples. Uh, everybody says the same thing about LL. Um, they say, when I walked into the store, he was looking through a pre-order of this book, looking for his name. But the second thing he did was he gave me great service, great jewelry, a great price, and no stress. You go to jewelry stores on Jewelers Row or in the mall or something, they're on you uh, just fucking really annoying. LL's place is not like that. It's, you know, it's a couple people. It's a small, um, in a good way, sort of homey. No, I don't mean homey. A quaint? Is it quaint? It's not even quaint. It's, it's just unintimidating. It's a good store uh, run by a good guy with good jewelry. If you're going to get an engagement ring from him, reach out to him first before you go over there so he can have everything ready for you. 215-627-2252. Email him at llpavorsky.com or uh, just shoot him a tweet at llpavorsky. 707 Walnut is where the store is. Coded by Kids and Providence Animal Center each get a donation for every LL ad. I think it's wonderful. LL Pavorsky Jewelers. Rescue Lee, where we name a Providence Animal Center dog after LL and then get them both drunk on meat. <laughs> I like that one. That's a good one. Uh, back to the Ricky. I, yeah, as soon as, <laughs> like, from after the chapter on, we're, we're in there a lot, especially Mike yeah. taking credit for the billboard. Is, uh, <laughs> is, is, Whoa! Is, 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 his his front I actually I actually don't remember. I remember I think I can probably remember all of the people who paid for the billboard. Yeah. But I, I I like I, I don't remember anything uh anything beyond that. Um uh I another great little nugget is just uh Nick Van Exel not wanting Brett Brown's <laughs> yes. Christmas C D. I, I just you have to read it to find out, but it's, it is one of my favorite little lines in there that I circled. Uh, I don't even know what there is to talk about in it, but I thought it was really good. It was so good because it didn't fit. Like I spent like an hour trying to fit it in like the normal paragraph page narrative. It just wasn't working, but I couldn't. So I just dumped it in a footnote. Like I'm like, this has to so, be. This has to be there. <laughs> let, let me ask you about owners. So y- sure. your um, 
you, you do a, a good introduction on Harrison Blitzer. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, like they bought a team for $280 million that was just valued in Forbes for $2 billion. Now, I'm not sure I believe that it's worth $2 billion, especially without a venue, but it's certainly worth a lot of money, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you mentioned that, you know, we all know everything that, that guys like this do when they, they basically buy companies, uh, trim the fat, get them ready for sale, and then sell them for more money. But one of the things that you mentioned was they start taking on, like, financing that they're not going to have to deal with afterwards. Yes. And I was thinking about, you know, I was talking to Sean, o- Sean O'Connor. I had a back and forth with him on, on Twitter. And he had mentioned earlier this week, Sean O'Connor, whose idea it was for the lottery party. Um, he mentioned, you know, say what you want about the owners, but they did um, basically agree to go into the luxury tax over the next couple of years. And I, I wrote back to him, well, they're going to sell the team. <laughs> and I, I thought about the value and what they're doing now, increasing ticket prices for uh, cash flow, which might be a short-term bump, especially if they're not as good next year, and thinking about their payroll that they have. And everything that you know, do you think that it is likely that they will sell the team within the next two or three years? Um, okay, so my answer originally would have been yes. The only thing I would push back on that is, or the only thing that, and this is, like, I kind of, this was not something I planned on doing, and, like, this is one of the arcs in the book, is I really, th- I think Josh Harris really likes playing GM of a basketball team. Oh, that's um, great news. <laughs> just, just that's like, the answer I needed. I yeah. Well, because I like, there are two quotes, so I'm like, I have... I quote him from his press conference when he's, you know, when he's introduced as the buyer and he basically says, this is a great business opportunity. And it's very, you know, he's talking like just purely from a business standpoint. And then you juxtapose that with the press conference where like last year to announce the Tobias Harris, all these summer moves. And he's sitting on the dais explaining why they work, like why the, you know, why the spacing on this team works and like why Al Horford's a good fit next to Joel Embiid. And it just, and, and he's talking about, you know, there's the press conference before the, uh, before the Nets, excuse me, before the Nets playoff series. It just seems like he's really into this. I mean, we know he's involved with team decision making. An example I always give is like the Sixers, they care about, they're, they're a team that cares about their org chart. Like the org chart is an important thing in that building. Um, Everybody's just th- kind of tied though. Just, right. It's, but, it's, but, it's everybody at the top and everyone just holding hands. And making one <laughs> collaborative decision <laughs> together. But it's funny. So there, there's like so Sam and Brian Colangelo were both, were both presidents of basketball operations. They don't have one right now. Like Elton's a GM, um, it, which is, it sounds dumb, but I like they don't they don't make those decisions. Like those decisions are made. I'm, there's thought they they put thought to the decisions in their titles, and I think it's basically everyone's reporting to Josh Harris, which yes, obviously is the case in all organizations, but. You know, I, I, he's he's definitely involved in basketball decisions, and so that would be my one thing. Is I think we find this with a lot of these guys. It's like they like if you don't own a basketball team, you're just another rich guy, and if you own an NBA team, people suddenly care about you. I mean, usually they don't like you, so I'm confused why you like that, but they seem these guys seem to enjoy this. I don't know. Yeah, Alyssa is convinced my tweets about Josh Harris are going to get me sued, so <laughs> hopefully not. You and me both. <laughs> uh, I so what is your you know, you, you've, you've sort of tinkered around the fringes of the organization for a while. You talked to a ton of people, some a lot off the record, I'm sure, some you were mm-hmm. barred from talking to. 
did you talk in talk to any current players um, on the team? Current, yeah, I'm thinking on the record. T.J. McConnell was really helpful to me, um, and he, like he wouldn't. I don't know if he realizes how helpful, but I basically spent every pregame media session. Um, going up to him and asking him like random, hey, in 2016 when Nerlens was whatever it is, you know, what traded, what do you remember? Mm-hmm. Um, and he would, uh, and I guess he didn't get the memo. I don't know, but he <laughs> would answer my, he would answer my questions. Uh, Doesn't he seem like a guy who has an email but only looks at it once every couple of months? <laughs> yes, and that might be the that might be the that might yeah. be the answer, right? Because yep. like yep. I put this in another player who I'd set something up with said, you know, told me, yeah, I was told I can't do any book related interviews. Sorry, they're my employer. Um, so yeah, so like the guys, the current guys on the record, not re- not like separately, specifically for the book, as opposed to a two-minute conversation on the side or you know a basic scrum or taking my other stuff. No, not really. Yeah, you I know, off the record again, but I, I I definitely understand that the Sixers are uh, in a totality of uh, incidents and f- uh, flashbulb moments and just random oddities and weirdness and all that stuff. But from an organizational standpoint, a like go to work every day, what's it like for the players every day all the time? Do you have a sense of like where the Sixers rank in terms of like good place to work? Um, that's a good question. See, so, yeah, I actually wonder, you know, the two teams I've covered mostly in the NBA are the Sixers and the Knicks. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Like, <laughs> so we're one, at least there. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's, it's, it's hard to compare, but then I sometimes joke that maybe it's just if, you know, if I spent a year talking to 150 people about the Indiana Pacers, would I think that they're a, you know, they're a mess? Maybe, I don't know. Um, I'll say this, like the Sixers and I think the players, like they take the they have they take player development and stuff seriously. I mean you can make fun of it, but they have like forty player development coaches and they hire an executive who helps with that stuff. So if you're talking about going to work from the player standpoint, I think they I think they hooked them up. I really do. That's my impression. Um, again, I don't know how that translates and it's clearly you know, you can you don't have to you don't have to have talked to 150 people to know there's a lot of uh, weird stuff going on in the background there. So I don't know how that filters down. And there's a whole Joel and Ben and everything that. So it's hard to answer. I don't know. So uh, before we let you go, I just want like, you know, we've gone over a lot of things. I wanted to make sure there wasn't something that that you thought that that we were that we would have asked or there was something on on your uh, docket that. Um, that we didn't get to. Uh, and I do appreciate, honestly, seeing the name. Look, you go through us coming up with the name of the podcast in the in the chapter. The fact that that name is the chapter of a <laughs> fucking hardcover book is, is I, I was at, as so I go to a therapist on Tuesdays, I told her we we're doing the interview tonight. And she's like, oh, you guys are in a book. I'm like, yeah. She's like, let me see it. I give it to her. And she's like, this is a real book. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> and, and I'm like, our pictures in there and our dumb banners in there. And we're the, the, the title of a, a chapter. So, so I appreciate it. You so talk to a therapist and she doesn't fucking realize how big we are. <laughs> I, well, that's what I'm trying to get across. That's what I'm trying to get across. Yeah. What's better, um, that that chapter or the uh, Uncone Sources title? Which one? Uh, which one's better? Oh, I enjoyed the Uncone Sources title. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Having to explain um, to my editors and like fact checkers that no, that type of that's correct. That's how it. Like, I, there were yep. there were a lot of emails that went into that. Just no, leave it as is. <laughs> <laughs> I will. I will say I have. I couldn't bring myself to read the Fultz chapter yet. I just, nah. oh, I wow. just, it's, it's not, it's, it's not a, it's a, a place I want to get to right now. And I know that I will, a, but I, it's, come on. It's there's, a good, if I may say so myself, it's a good one. There's, there's some good a, stuff in there. There's a limit to how much I, a man can take. You're on. There's That's just fair. a limit. There's a, it's a that book of just, of, of times in my life that I was 
struggling. <laughs> Every single part of the step is like, oh, God, that's, oh. I remember how fucking devastating that was. Uh, but I enjoyed it as, as a memory, as a walk down memory lane of uh, all of my turmoil. Uh, what an enjoyable <laughs> read it was. What could be better? Um, anything we forgot or no? No, I anything? think we got, no, I, I appreciate no. you guys. I think we covered everything. So uh, Tanking to the Top is the name of the book. I, you know, I got to be honest with you. I gave you a lot of compliments in the book. Yeah, hit I do me. fucking hate the, I hate the fucking title. I just. <laughs> well, I, I can um, tell you a story about that. You want to hear this? It, the okay, title was yeah. supposed to be something. The title was supposed to be something else. Um, okay. It was supposed to be a name that is related to a nickname of a certain player who made clear that there would be maybe legal action if that name <laughs> was used on a book. So, and this was made clear very close to the end. So the title derived from a two-day session with my high school friends throwing around any type of name. So. I just, I, I hated, I, I'll tell you, just my feeling on all of this. Go ahead, hit me. I, I, I hate, like, look, we've been in, the number of arguments that Mike and I have been in our, our even in our private lives about this bullshit is, is, <laughs> is so, the number is so big, you know, it's so big. And the one thing that, that always got to me is that, like, it was about, and Sam said this, and this was about more than, like, the plan was about more than, just sucking and and like about more than losing games and i like i i just hate and like look it, you know you got to do what you got to do you got to have a good it's a it's probably a good title um and it's not i don't think it's deceptive but i just thought from from a purity standpoint and from a what we cared about standpoint i'm like ugh, to just call it tanking tons of teams tanked <laughs> but but no other team did this and that was that was sort of how i felt about it can I tell you what I, what I love most is all the people on Twitter who respond. What do they What do they get to the top to? They're not at the top yet. Sure. Oh yeah. Well, my, so you talked the on the previous podcast you did with Howard Beck. Uh, yeah. You talked about uh, I think either you or Howard asked, "Did the process work?" And it just yeah. like it is so. The answer is abundantly yes. Like it's just so mm -hmm. clearly yes. I know they're disputing the process has both ended and continues and there's you know everyone can have their own interpretation of that and we will change it uh liberally as needed but it's like a flat circle the process of course it worked like <laughs> of course it worked and to say that it didn't is like saying like hey look you made like what a beautiful dinner you made but just before you took it out of the oven someone peed in it so that's your <laughs> fault and you it didn't work you didn't do a good job it was bad from the start it's like that's crazy it worked do you, do we did it so as the authorities, right, do you guys agree with the way I'm presenting it as the basic math of it is you gave, you know, two plus, whatever, you know, three years of losing for five, six years of, even if you don't win a championship, like if you're a Sixers fan, every, you guys care, right? Every game matters. Absolutely. Like that's what you want, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. There, uh, for a long time, back when I was still writing at Liberty Ballers, it, there was always like, oh, how many lost years or another lost year for the Sixers? And I was like, we've just been, for most of my life, it was lost years. Like there was not a chance, mm -hmm. even when they went to the finals with Iverson, which was great. Uh, it, there was no chance they were winning. There was just not even a close. So it was just like lost year. There were decades of lost years. And so this idea that like a couple, three years of being intentionally bad, and Howard made this point, three years of being intentionally bad uh, versus, you know, how many years in a row that other franchises that I don't have to name have been bad by accident. Yep. It's like a, a million of those, a million of those. Yeah, I... I think my, my obvious regret is like what could have been if we finished it the right way. That yeah. makes sense. That's, that's it. Um, so your own Weitzman uh, book comes out March 17th. Uh, it is called Tanking to the Top, even though uh, 
regardless of our objections. <laughs> and uh, and and you can pre-order it anywhere. Obviously, you can pre-order it at Amazon. Do you have any preferences to where people pre-order it? No, I don't think there's a difference in terms of. I think okay. I get I, I get rich no matter what. So there you go. <laughs> oh right. Well, that's that's the whole goal. We all want to it's a really good so, book, uh, and we would not tell you to read it. And and buy it if it wasn't. We would not have your own on yeah. this podcast if we thought it was trash. We would we would disavow immediately and never talk to him again. But it was good. That he showed up to the lottery parties. He he gave a shit. And so buy the book. Yep. Um, thanks, man. Thank you, guys. Truly appreciate it. Appreciate it, buddy. All right. Well, buy your own book. And uh, as I mentioned before, we are going to do an excerpt coming. It'll be in the uh, of the Scott O'Neill chapter, the coup chapter, I believe it's called. Um, that'll come out in our newsletter the week the book comes out. You mm. can sign up at writesrikisanchez.com slash newsletter. Hated that, it. That, Hated that, it. That ch- yeah, that chapter made me really pissed off. Yeah. Really angry. No. I mean, by the way, Scott O'Neill, if you want to come on this podcast, clear your good name, we'd be happy to have you. Also, if oh, you want wow. to play me one-on-one in basketball, because I assure you I have more vitriol towards you than you do towards me. <laughs> <laughs> Bring it. Let's go. Oh Guy talks God. about how good he is at basketball all the time. Prove it. Oh, by the way, there's a, there's an auction for Sixers Charities where you can ring the bell. Um, the Wait, what's it up to? Hold on. I could tell you right now. They should pay ask. us to ring the bell. They should pay okay. us after all the fucking free publicity we've given them for seven goddamn years. I was going to ask you if we should bid on it just to make them sweat. No, um, no. No. What's no. it up to? It is up to, yeah, $8,700. <laughs> that, that's not worth the sweat. I, if I, you, instead, of, if they want to just give me $8,700, I'll never talk about ringing the bell again. <laughs> 700 that's all it's going to cost? Eight, no, 8700 I need it. Oh, 8700 yeah. Okay. All right, we will talk to you Sunday. After oh, I will King's say, uh, oh. sorry, I will uh, just a brief plug for my friend uh, Taylor Mizak, who has been on the podcast um, and was also there at uh, the Blue Coats night. Um, she, the one that, that hosts the podcast with your with Alyssa. She hosts the podcast with Alyssa, Alyssa Table Flipping, which is about reality women of reality television. Taylor is an actress, and she is the lead actress in the, sh- the new FX series Dave which is about uh, Lil Dicky and his life. And I went bowling with Lil Dicky once, so I feel a kinship with this show. It premieres, I don't know when we're releasing this podcast, but Wednesday, this Wednesday at 10 p.m. It's on FX or FX on Hulu. So check it out. Lil Dicky's obviously from Philly. Taylor is a big Sixers fan now uh, and very close to uh, the my home. And I love them all. So watch the show. Lil Dicky, Dave. I like FX shows. What was my fi- one of my favorite ex- FX shows? I don't think anybody liked the show. Was the the talking dog show that only lasted Wilfred? Uh, I fucking love Wilfred. Yeah, I love that show. show. Yeah. show. Good network. Uh, watch the show. Yeah, watch the show. Watch watch Taylor's show. Um, all right, uh, we'll talk to you Sunday. Are you down with TTP? Yeah, you know Lickface. We will write y'all, we will write, we will write, even when it went wrong, we will write, we was right y'all, we will write, so say the name, say the name, we will write y'all.
Forever.